I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, never give up, never surrender. A familiar meme that champions perseverance and tenacity. But has the decision to quit gotten a bad rap? Can quitting be self-affirming and a positive step in our lives? We don't want to stop ourselves from quitting because we're worried about wasting what's already gone. Instead, we need to say that waste is a forward-looking problem. In other words, do I want to wake up 10 years from now still in this relationship? And later, from parenting to partnering and from jobs to even travel, is there a skill in learning how and when to call it quits? If we know that after we make a decision to start something, that we're not not going to process particularly rationally the signals that might tell us that we should stop. If we have to face them down in the moment, maybe we should think about what those signals are in advance. Ex-poker player and decision-making expert Annie Duke on the wisdom of knowing when to walk away. That's coming up on Life Examined. When it comes to tossing in the towel and cutting our losses, the optics aren't always good. Society values those who struggle to achieve a goal. Grit and determination are often seen as virtuous traits. History is rife with stories of successful entrepreneurs who started out penniless, or couples with idyllic long happy marriages, or musicians, athletes, painters, you name it. Perseverance and endurance seems to pay off. But there's another side. Actually knowing when to quit can be as important and as empowering as sticking it out. Whether it's a dead-end job, toxic relationship, investment, project, or a game, the decision to walk away can also bring happiness, success, and opportunity. In fact, take a look, and it's apparent that winners actually quit quite a lot. Learning when to fold and when to hold was critical for former professional poker player Annie Duke. In her latest book called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, Duke shares her insights and explains why we're so resistant to moving on. Joining me now for the full hour is Annie Duke, best-selling author and decision-making expert. Annie, welcome to Life Examined. Well, thank you for having me, Jonathan. One thing that our listeners may not know about you is that you have a you have an interesting background as a poker player, and uh, <laughs> I, I I figured we had to start there because there's a lot of winning and losing and quitting and knowing when to stop in that game. So tell us about your life playing poker. I'm curious. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, there's that Kenny Rogers song, The Gambler, right? right? You have to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. And I just want to point out that three of those four things are about quitting. Mm. So, there, and you know, I think he was right about that. So there's no doubt that my previous life as a professional poker player, which went from 1994 to 2012, definitely informs my thinking about the importance of quitting as a skill because when to fold and when not to fold and being really good at that decision is probably the single biggest thing that separates great poker players from amateurs. Mm. Why do you think you were good at poker? I mean, that that's a long career and it sounds like you, it was quite lucrative for you as well. You know, I always feel like I would be making up stories because, I mean, this is part of the problem with cognitive bias and self-assessment, you know, is that you just want to confirm the things that you believe to be true about yourself. But, um, I mean, first of all, I think that I just have always had a, a pretty deep curiosity about decision-making under uncertainty mm. and how to actually sort of dive into those environments, whether it's from a scientific standpoint in my academic work in cognitive science before I played poker and after I played poker, um, you know, or in poker itself, which is, I think, the ultimate test of decision-making under uncertainty. There's so much luck involved in the short run, you know, just in terms of, for example, the deal of the cards, which you don't control, yeah. and so much hidden information. You know, you can't see your opponent's cards. It's just a really hard problem. And I think I just kind of love those kinds of problems, and that's probably one of the reasons why I was good at it. And then the other thing that I was think I was pretty good at was playing pretty close to the same when I was winning as when I was losing, mm. which is actually really, really hard. And it actually fits into this theme of like, when do you quit? Because in particular, I think that when people start to lose at anything, um, whether it's poker or, you know, a job that isn't going well and you've put so much time and effort into it, a relationship, a project, or a product that you're developing, that that once we start to feel those losses and have to face this decision about whether to walk away from it, 
it's it really affects our decisions really badly because we all want to get our money back or our time back or to not feel like we've wasted all the training that we've put into something. Um, and I think that that's just actually really hard. And I think that's something that maybe I was a little bit better uh, than most people at was just being sort of okay with flushing those losses and, and trying to play the same whether I was winning or losing. Yeah, and subsequently, when you're winning or when you're on a hot streak with anything, I think there's the idea that, oh, this could go on forever. Maybe I'll go even deeper. I'll, I'll keep pushing it. And suddenly, you're back in the red again. Yeah, there, there's actually two, there's kind of two things that can happen to you when you're winning. One is that it can create over-optimism, hmm. you know, sort of optimism bias or, or, or um, uh, just overconfidence in general. Um, so what happens is that you're trying to figure out when you're, say, playing a game of poker, uh, what you expect to win over the long run. And when you're kind of on a hot streak, what happens is you can overestimate how good you are in comparison to the people that you're playing against. In other words, you can think that you're supposed to win way more than you actually mathematically are. Mm. And in that case, that can cause a problem with not quitting. In the same way that optimism can cause all of us to not quit in situations that we should. If we're, if we're overly hopeful that things are gonna go our way, then we're going to stick to things in situations where if we were objective, we would walk away from them. So I think that's that's a little bit of a problem with like that hot streak problem is that it creates this over-optimism, this uh, inaccurate estimation of how worthwhile it is for us to continue to do something. But then there's a, another thing that happens, which I think is really interesting, which plays into this aphorism that we all hear, which is quit while you're ahead. Yeah. Um, and when we get ahead at things, we will often quit them too early. So these are kind of parallel problems in the sense that the decision about whether to stick or quit should be made really solely on uh, whether you're getting a positive return on investment going forward. And that can be whether it's like your time in a job or a product that you're developing or money that you've invested in a stock. It's just, you know, is it worthwhile to continue? Is this something that's actually going to help me to gain grounds toward my goals? And if the answer to that is yes, you should continue. And if the answer to that is no, then you ought not to continue. Mm. So the over-optimism problem causes us to answer that question about whether it's worthwhile poorly. So that's problem number one. But then problem number two is that sometimes we aren't even thinking about whether it's worthwhile to continue or not. Instead, what we're thinking about is, do we have a gain on paper that we'd really like to turn into a realized gain? So we don't want to kind of keep going because if we keep going, we might say lose our money back. So this would be very common in stocks. You know, you buy a stock at 50 and it goes to 60. It may still be worthwhile to hold it, but then we do that thing, which is quit while we're ahead mm -hmm. because it's so painful for us to imagine that we held on to it and somehow lost some of that, some of those gains back. And then on the flip side, when we're losing, when we buy the stock at 50 and it's trading at 40, um, we'll tend to hold on to it because it would be so painful for us to realize that loss. So we can kind of get these opposing problems depending on whether you're winning or losing. Mm. It's interesting you mention uh, equities or stocks. I think that's that's a whole other fascinating realm. And I remember reading in, in a book about investing, there was this psychological idea that losses loom greater than gains. Mm -hmm. That, there, that ultimately we were more hurt by what we lose in, versus feeling good about what we may gain. Do you think that's true? Yeah, so that's a pretty well-replicated result that comes from Daniel Kahneman and Amy, Amos Tversky. Um, it's a linchpin of prospect theory, which mm. Daniel Kahneman went on to win the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences for. Uh, and it's this idea that we can kind of think about like, if you were playing blackjack and you lost $100, that would feel about as bad to you as winning $50 would mm. feel good to you. So there's this asymmetry between uh, gains and losses in terms of how painful or happy they make us where uh, losses loom larger. So this creates something called loss aversion. And loss aversion 
plays with something else, which is a con concept from Kahneman, which is called shore loss aversion in a way that makes it very hard for us to quit. So just to distinguish the two, loss aversion makes us think about when we're thinking about starting something. We're much more worried about the potential losses that we might incur as opposed to the gains that we might accrue. Yeah. So, uh, so what it will do is it will cause us to be risk averse, right? We're like, we'll choose things where there isn't a lot of loss associated with it, but then obviously what goes along with that is probably there's not a lot of gain associated with it too. We don't like, really like to risk that. So, um, so it's, as Kahneman would put it, loss aversion will stop us from starting things that we should start because we're afraid that we might, that it might turn out poorly. Mm. Sure, loss aversion is a companion idea, which is that, we do not like to take paper losses and turn them into realized losses. So if you think about um, the idea of like if you buy a stock at 50 and, you, and it's now trading at 40, it's only if you sell it that it's a sure loss. Mm -hmm. If you hold on to it, maybe you can get that money back. So now we can think about the way that these two things play together to make quitting really hard. So let's say that you're in a job that you hate. Sure loss aversion you know, and a variety of other biases um, is going to stop you from wanting to walk away because that's the moment that you would say, you know, oh, I can't ever recover the cause, right? Like th there's no way for me to make this work out, for me to achieve my goals in this job, for me to feel like this was a good fit, that I didn't make a mistake taking it, so on and so forth. So that would be sure loss aversion, not wanting to walk away because that's the moment that you can't recover the cause. On the flip side, when you're thinking about stopping something, you're also thinking about starting something new. So maybe I'm going to quit my job and then I'm going to go take a new job. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that when we're thinking about taking that new job, we get really worried about what if that doesn't work out, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's loss aversion coming into play. And we recruit loss aversion into, into decisions about starting things in a way that we don't recruit it into decisions about whether we should keep doing the thing that we're doing. So I, I think a good example of like how these things work together comes from this woman that I talked to, Sarah Olsten Martinez. She was a ER doctor who had been promoted into administrative role. And she came to me because she was having trouble with a quitting decision. She really hated her job as a hospital administrator and she had been offered a new job as uh, at an insurance company evaluating cases, and she really didn't know whether she should quit or not. So she asked me about it, and I asked her to just, just sort of describe like what was going on in the job she was in, and I would just sum it up as miserable and having been miserable for years. Yeah. So, you know, a little confused at that point as to why she's asking me anything about quitting. It seems pretty obvious. And I said to her, well, if you've been miserable, I mean, I'm just curious as to why you're not just jumping on this new job. And she said, well, what if that one doesn't work out too? So now we can see these two things playing together. So when I asked her that, she, that was the first thing she said. And now we get into the sure loss aversion. The second thing she said was I put so much time and energy and training mm -hmm. into being an ER doc and I don't want to have to give that, like I'll, I'll feel like I will have wasted my time. I will have lost all of that. So, you know, I just said to her, well, if you imagine a year from now, what's the probability you're happy in your current position? And her answer was 0%. So I said, all right, you know, because she already knew she was miserable. And I said, well, what's the probability you're going to be happy in the new position? And she said, I don't know, maybe like 50-50. Mm -hmm. And I just said, well, is a 50% chance that happiness better than zero? And she said, yes. And she quit. But there you can see this problem of loss aversion, right? She wasn't really thinking about the misery that might she might incur from staying in the job she was in. She was only concerned about the potential misery that was associated with the new thing that she might start. And that becomes really problematic for being good at quitting. Hmm. Very interesting story. And it seems to kind of get at the heart of, of so much of your research. And we, we could expand this in so many different directions. Um, you know, uh, as a therapist, I, I would often see this in relationships uh, mm -hmm. in which somebody has put in so much time into a marriage or uh, a partnership that they think, well, I, I've invested 20 years. I, 
I don't feel comfortable now just jettisoning this whole thing, considering my investment into it. And mm-hmm. and I remember a very potent line once I learned from another psychologist, which is, you know, in a place like America, we we tend to value relationships or we prize them on their longevity and not necessarily um, their happiness or mm-hmm. the extent to which they bring, you know, positive feelings into our lives. And I, I sit with all of this and what you're saying, because I think we see it in that arena quite a bit, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, the, the problem is, I think there's a few problems, right? What you're pointing out is that we value grit, period. Mm-hmm. And, and we forget about the worthwhile part. So this is what is so great about grit, is that it gets you to stick to things that are worthwhile, even if they're hard. And that's great. That's awesome, right? Like I recommend the book Grit to people all the time. I think it's a valuable um, muscle to develop. The issue, though, is that grit, when taken kind of as the goal, as sort of the idea that, that grit itself is good, period, also gets you to stick to hard things that are not worthwhile. And I think that that's the thing that we lose sight of is the worthwhile part. And we can see that in, in the insight about relationships. When we prize longevity, which is just grit, over the quality of the relationship, whether the relationship is happy, that's exactly what we're doing is, is we're, we're forgetting the worthwhile part. Mm. So I, I think that that's really like a huge problem. And then, and then the second problem that comes up in the example that you gave is that we have a tendency to think about waste as a backward-looking problem. But waste is a forward-looking problem. The time and energy and everything that you've put into that relationship for 20 years is 20 years that is already gone. There is no getting it back. It's not clear that you wasted it just because it didn't work out, because it may have been happy at one time. It may have been worth it for you to try. That's a totally separate question. But we don't want to stop ourselves from, from quitting because we're worried about wasting what's already gone. Instead, we need to turn it on its head and say that waste is a forward-looking problem. In other words, do I want to wake up 10 years from now still in this relationship? Is it worthwhile for me to be in this relationship over the next year? Do I think that it's going to bring me happiness? And that's true whether it's a relationship or, or a job that mm-hmm. you hate. Is it worthwhile to, for me to be in it? you know, going forward or a stock that you've bought. You know, I bought the stock at 50, it's trading at 40. Should I hold on to it or not should only be about whether it's the right place for your dollars going forward, not about whether you're worried about having wasted the $10 that you already have lost to it. And I think that we really just have trouble thinking about waste going forward into the future. We get really focused on this feeling of having wasted in the past. Mm. And I think part of that is because take a relationship, uh, you say you leave after 10 years, I think there's some very natural human emotions of regret that come mm-hmm. with that, of anger, of saying mm-hmm. that those are years I do not get back and that I can never have again. And right. for some, they say, you know, ultimately, if it was the right decision, they say, why didn't I do that earlier, of course, but but Pretty I Pretty much always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're always like, why didn't I do that sooner? So I guess just to say that I think it, there is a real fear w- when you, you know, step out of something like that. And, and there are real emotions that come with it. Well, I mean, obviously there are, right? I mean, look, it, it, these, these biases that we have against quitting, just because it's a bias, just because it's a cognitive error doesn't mean it's very real. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the pain that we're feeling around it that's causing us to distort our decision making in a way that's causing us to waste more going forward. Because what happens is that the realness of that feeling of having put so much time into something and, you know, having it endured so much and that it's 10 years that you can't get back. The, the problem is that that very real emotion then causes us to put in another year yeah, and another year and another year, which is time that we also can't get back. And I would never deny that you're going to have those feelings. Of course you are. They're very real. I'm just trying to get people to sort of focus on the future. Is it worthwhile for me to continue going forward? And, and one of the things that we want to think about, and we can think about this in terms of relationships, is... 
what are the things that I'm missing out on by staying in this relationship? Mm -hmm. And I think to really get to the heart of the matter, when I'm talking to people who are in relationships, and also actually, interestingly enough, when I'm talking to people who are employers, who have these same kind of problems about about letting employees go, about yeah. having to lay people off. Well, the relationships, they all are, right? They in all the are, right, yeah. exactly. I'll, I'll say to people in relationships, well, I understand, like, it's usually they'll say, what if I don't find somebody new? What if I get into a new relationship and I'm, and I'm, I'm unhappy, which is exactly what happened with Sarah Olsen Martinez, right? Which is, okay, but you're miserable in the relationship that you're in and you've gone to couples counseling and you've done the work, you've tried to make it better. And you have the information that you need to know to know that this is not working out. So, you know, that it's that focus on what if it doesn't work out. And, and what I'll generally try to refocus to them is imagine you're alone. Imagine that the next over the next six months, you're just alone. Do you think you'll be happier than being in this relationship? Mm. And it's amazing, you know, when people are in that state, once you say that, they kind of realize, oh, wait, no, I would be happier alone. So instead of focusing on what if I get in a new thing, it doesn't work out, I say, no, just forget about that part. Just like if you're alone, are you happier? And you can do that. I do this with employers also where I say, imagine that you didn't have somebody in that seat. Would you be better off as a company if there was nobody in that job? And it's very often the case that, that they would be better off because the person who's underperforming is acting as a blocker. They're generally creating resentment on teams and so on and so forth. And once I sort of refocus them to that, don't worry about the losses associated with the new hire. Don't worry about the losses associated with a new relationship. Just think about what if you were alone? Mm -hmm. And I think that that can help us to kind of get over that, to focus on the opportunity that we're missing out on. Mm. It also just occurs to me as we as we talk through this, you know, whether it's it's a relationship or a job, when you do decide to quit or step away, one thing you're abandoning is is a future dream or a projection or mm -hmm. this thing you kind of held on to, and 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 that I think in and of itself can be can create quite a bit of grief, can't it? Well, I think it can not only create grief, but it can cause us to keep heading toward things yeah. that we ought not to continue to head toward. So like one of my favorite stories that fits into this vein is about Siobhan O'Keefe, who was, she was running the 2019 marathon. And obviously when you're running a marathon, there's a very clear finish line, 26.2 miles That's away right. from the starting point. And on mile four, she started experiencing some pain in her leg. And then on mile eight, her fibula bone snapped. Oh. She, she broke her leg. Wow. And she kept running. And she finished the race. Obviously against the advice of you yeah, know, any medical, medical expert, sure. Who knew she had broken her leg, by the way, and said, Don't run. Oh. And she said, you know, no, I'm gonna keep going. So so let's think about this in terms of like these this idea of like kind of hopes and dreams. The question is, what is the hope and dream? Because we have these hopes and dreams and then, you know, that it tend to be broad things like I want to have a happy and fulfilling life. And then we create these goals that are proxies for that, that hope and dream. In other words, we set a goal, which is like, a, here are the things that I'm trying to achieve. Here are the things that I value. And what am I willing to cost myself to get this thing that I value? Okay, so like if we took something like a marathon, one assumes that you like want to accomplish something that very few people accomplish, uh, that makes you feel really good. I assume there's something around there that has to do with fitness. And so now you set some goal, like I want to run a marathon. And you've decided that the cost of that, which is like time away from family, uh, maybe social time with your friends where you're spending time training, uh, physical discomfort, that those kinds of things are worth it in order for what this completion of the marathon is going to do towards your broad life goals about yeah. fulfillment and, you know, self-esteem and physical fitness and longevity and these kinds of things. Okay. So we sort of set that up and then the, the finish line of that marathon now becomes a proxy for those things. And what happens then is that the finish line itself starts to become the thing that you're heading toward. 
and we lose sight of the broader goal. What is it that we're really trying to accomplish in our life? So, and we can kind of see this with Siobhan O'Keefe because had she been running a half marathon, clearly she would not have run 26.2 miles. She would have run 13.1 miles. Because we have to realize that like these finish lines, these goals, these these sort of dreams that we set for ourselves are somewhat arbitrary because they're really a stand-in for broader things that we're trying to achieve. But we lose sight of that part of it and we just start to head towards something. And I think that a relationship is a good example of that where, you know, we're trying to find fulfillment with a life partner who, you know, we work together, we work through hard stuff together, make each other happy, you know, attentive, maybe has very similar goals to us around like career, where we want to live, so on and so forth. So we have all these ideas of the fulfillment that we might get from like a really wonderful and healthy partnership. But at some point you pick somebody and you pick someone and now the goal just is, I want the, you know, I don't want to fail at this relationship, this particular relationship. And it causes us to continue to head toward the finish line in the marathon when our leg is broken because we don't want to stop short of whatever that goal is that's a stand-in for the things that we're really valuing, that we're really trying to achieve. And then that actually can end up preventing us from achieving the things that we were trying to achieve through the goal that we set. I hope that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense. And by the way, and and a lot of our listeners know this, you're speaking to someone who just completed an Ironman recently. And the the demands of this really hit home for me as somebody who, you know, had an experience not so long ago that I didn't break my leg. But, you know, in the midst of a 13-hour race, I, you know, I tell the story of one point having, you know, a a physical and mental breakdown, locking myself in a porta potty, eating pretzels right. for five minutes, and literally um, questioning what I was doing out there, what decisions in my life had taken me to this moment, and all I wanted to do was quit. That was the only thing, just please get me out of here. Somebody airlift me out of this porta potty and take me home, you know? And and just to play the counter here, I mean, it was the lowest of the low, and I was able to work through that, mm-hmm. get through it, and I finished the race. And, you know, it was ultimately one of the most meaningful moments of my life, I would say. And so this is not a parallel situation, but I think it does bring up the flip side of those those moments in which you are at your lowest point, and there is this feeling of redemption and of overcoming and getting to the place you wanted to. So... I'm kind of looking at both of these stories and trying to understand them together because we see a lot of narratives going in two directions. Yeah, so again, look, it has to do with whether the thing you're doing is ultimately worthwhile. Mm. And I would never tell someone that grit isn't a good thing. I'm a very gritty person. Yeah. You are too. Um, It's just that grit, absent that question about is this long-term worthwhile for me is not good. Yeah. Because grit will help you to get through those lows, the, the lowest of the lows. But like in this case, like you're not injured. Exactly. Right? Like you know you're going to be sad if you don't reach the goal. Um, so long term, it's probably not going to feel good to you to not finish. Nobody's telling you you're impossibly dehydrated. Yeah. Um. So, you know, that's just a low point, right? And mm-hmm. And that's the thing that we really want to distinguish between. It's not about like just sticking to things is good and gives you satisfaction and so on and so forth or quitting things is good. It's what are the circumstances of the quit or, or grit decision in terms of whether it's correct for you to continue, basically. If you're just joining us, this is Life Examined on KCRW, and my guest this hour is Annie Duke, author of Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. We'll be back with part two in just a moment. But first, how do you feel about quitting? Have you ever had the courage to quit something huge? Did it work out in your benefit? And what was that process like? Share your story with our Facebook community. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be back in just a moment. This is KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard author and former professional poker player Annie Duke talk about how being too optimistic can impact the decision to quit. When you lose the ability to be objective and see the signs, the tendency is to stick it out. Duke also explains how fear of the unknown can keep us in a toxic relationship or a dead-end job. So how do you distinguish whether something is worthwhile or not? And how should parents guide their children when they declare they want to quit? Let's jump back in. I wonder if we actually take a step back here and to think about, uh, and I don't know if this is a particularly American thing that we're talking about, this notion of just stick it out and quitting is for losers and you got to just keep fighting, 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 fighting and pain is gain, right? I mean, all of these like- <laughs> No pain, no gain. Right, right. I mean, there's all all these just like wartime analogies right. that, that factor into any of this stuff anyway. But, but I'm wondering, I mean, when you were thinking even just about the notion of quitting, where do you think some of this stuff comes from in the sense that we almost have this allergy to the idea of quitting? You know, I I, I mean, it's a little bit chicken in the egg. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. But um, what I can tell you is it's not just Americans. I do think Americans have a, a, a little more of a fascination than maybe some other cultures um, with grit. But it, this is just a human condition kind of thing. There are so many cognitive biases that line up to make it hard for us to quit that uh, – that I think that that's the first problem in terms of the allergy to quitting. But then I think there, there's there's another issue which has to do with sort of this desire to know. Hmm. So it, once you start something, you know, and you've set a goal, right, that now becomes sort of the object of your desire, the goal. Right. Again, remember I said that you sort of lose sight of that. I'm trying to create happiness and fulfillment in yeah, my life. Yeah. And instead it's, you know, I'm running an Ironman. And the problem with quitting is that the only way for us to know for sure that we that quitting is the choice that we need to make is if we keep going. Mm-hmm. So in other words, like if we want to know how the thing that we started turns out, do we actually make it to the finish line? Do we actually recover the cause? Right. Like. We hear these stories all the time about people who founded startups and they got down to their last, you know, few thousand dollars and they couldn't raise any money, but they kept at it. And then yeah. all of a sudden they got the customer that changed the trajectory of the company and they succeeded. And if we quit when we've just got that thousand in the bank or whatever, before we're actually dead broke, we're always going to left with that, be left with that wondering of what if. Like, what if we had continued? Like, maybe we could have actually turned it around. Now, the problem with this desire for that kind of certainty is that what that means is that you're sticking to things way too long because by the time you know for sure, you should have already quit a long time before that. Right. I mean, you can kind of think about it in circumstances like if you only turn around on the top of Mount Everest when you know for sure that you have no other choice, you're already basically dead because you have no oxygen and you're, you're in the middle of a snowstorm and you're snow blind. OK, well, then you know for sure that you have to turn around. Right. If you do it any time before then, you're going to be left with these what ifs like what if I had continued? Maybe I could have made it to the summit because it's so painful for us to walk away. So I I think that's one of the things that makes this very hard for us. And then what happens to us, because we do want to know, because there are so many biases that stop us from quitting, is that, and because there is this sort of admiration around those who persevere, those who stick it out through the hard times and keep going and, and, you know, end up saving the day, is that we have these issues of external validity that now get tied into it. And external validity is just simply, how are other people going to view me? Yeah. Do, do they see me as valid, right, in terms of my own personhood? And let's think about that. And I think this is where it gets really interesting with quitting, 
is that as you point, like if I call you a quitter, I'm calling you a loser. So even when I tell you the story of Siobhan O'Keefe, who broke her leg on mile eight and kept running the marathon against medical advice, you know, Jonathan, I think we can admit that there's something in us that admires that. Of course. It's a hero story. Right. Hero's journey. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, despite the fact that we shouldn't admire it, like all the doctors were saying, you know, you're, you're going to really do permanent damage to your leg. Like you may never run a race again. Like yeah. clearly should should have quit. In the same way that if someone plays, you know, through a concussion in football, we would, you know, we ought to prefer them to walk off the field. But instead, like something in us is like, oh, they're so tough. Yeah, exactly. That's so amazing. And so if we know that that's the narrative, how do we not obsess with sticking to things? Because we know that that's the thing that's going to get us the kudos. That's the thing that's going to get us people to admire. So, you know, I think that I think that this brings up like this very interesting paradox, which is that we think about sticking to things as heroic and courageous. But I actually think that quitting things very often is the more courageous act. Because when we quit things, we are left with those what ifs that we have to face. What if I had kept going? Maybe I could have made it work, right? And we're going to have to live with that for the rest of our lives. And when we do quit, we know that people are going to question this decision. Well, why'd you walk away? Maybe you're weak-willed. You know, are you a coward? But when we stick to things... First of all, we're going to get the certainty that we desire, and we know everybody's going to admire us for it. So which is the more heroic thing to do? Like, I think that's up for questioning. Hmm. And so much of this, of course, can be circumstantial or contextual, be, because on one level, I mean, for example, I, I believe that this book is dedicated to your children. Is that right? Or your kids? It is. Yeah. And I mean, this comes into raising kids. I don't have any, but I know, of course, many that do. And that we both want to instill a notion of sticking to and grit. But I think you're talking about this other wisdom, which is that there is also a really important case to make to walk away. So I think perhaps what we need to think about is help us understand when we make that decision. How do we yeah. work through the human psychology? Because I think we also don't want to just be people that try things and give up immediately either, right? No, so no, so, so sure we're looking not. for a balance here. Mm -hmm. And so it, part of your book is, is is providing some tools. So let's go there for a little bit for those that feel that they are in these situations and they could use some guidance on quitting. Yeah, so... There's really like two, two main strategies to becoming a better quitter. And both of them help us with a particular issue that we have, which is that when we're in the decision, facing, like when you were in the porta potty, there we right? go. like uh -huh. crying with your pretzels, um, that's that moment we're not going to be particularly rational about whether we should walk away or not. Well, in the in the same sense that like if, if you're trying to eat healthy and you're sitting in front of an open box of chocolates, you're not going to be a particularly good decision maker um, about whether you should actually eat those chocolates or not. So what we're trying to do is realize that we have this intuition that when we get bad news, when when there are signals that tell us that we should walk away from something, that we'll actually pay attention and obviously we'll walk away. But that intuition is really wrong because once we're in it and we have a history with the decision, we've already started it and we've already started to put time and effort and resources in our own identity. And we know that people are going to know that we're walking away from whatever it is that we're walking away from, so on and so forth, that, um, that we're just not going to be rational. So the, the tactics that we want to use or the strategies that we want to use are going to get us out of the decision. And there's two main strategies, and we can talk about it from a parenting perspective sure. since you brought it up. Uh, strategy number one is a quitting coach. And that just says, go find somebody who is not in it with you to help you with the decision. In fact, therapists often act as quitting coaches. That's, of course. Yeah, right? I would say almost it's, it's a huge percentage of their job. So. Exactly. <laughs> because when I'm thinking about the 20 years that I've put into a relationship, my therapist does not put that 20 years into the relationship. So they're not in it with me. They're not carrying all of the cognitive debris 
that comes from the years of time and effort that I've put into something, how much my identity might be wrapped up into that. And, and walking away from who you are is really hard. And if you've been in a, you know, married in a relationship for 20 years, clearly it's part of who you are. You know, you're a Mrs. or Mr., right? You're a husband or wife or a wife and a wife or a husband and a husband or however you identify. That's part of that, you know, whatever that relationship is becomes part of you, becomes who you are. So, um, you know, so I think that that having someone who's, who's not in it with you is super helpful particularly when they are someone who has expertise, who, who are where their opinion of what they see uh, is going to be valuable because they, they're the right type of person to be helping you with that. So a therapist can be in that role. A mentor can be in that role uh, when it comes to career decisions. Obviously, a parent can be in that role because they may be able to see the difference for a child between having a bad day on the, on the soccer pitch, you know, versus this is something that isn't really going to be fulfilling and worthwhile for you in the long run, right? And that's the thing that we're trying to distinguish between, you know, did you have a bad day at school? Did you fail one test, right? Versus like dropping out of school because you had, you know, a bad day. Like how do you get people to see what the long-term payoff is? And so parents in regards to children can be incredibly helpful with that. Um, And then the second strategy, which is really helpful, is a think ahead strategy, which is to set what I would call kill criteria. Um, And basically that's saying, look, if we know that after we make a decision to start something, that we're not going to process particularly rationally the signals that might tell us that we should stop, if we have to face them down in the moment, maybe we should think about what those signals are in advance. Write them down and commit in advance to quitting when we see those signals. So if we take again, like a parenting example, let's say that my child is playing soccer and they have a terrible day and they tell me they hate it and that they never wanna play soccer again, so they wanna quit. Sure. So as a parent, what I can say to them is, okay, well, you know, I think you might've had a bad day. Um, I don't think now is a good time to make that decision. Let's commit to how many more games and practices do you think it's reasonable for you to go to before we can try to sort of figure out whether this is something that just isn't for you? Hmm. And so maybe, you know, it's halfway through the season and, and I say, let's just complete this season. If you don't, you know, if, if you don't like it at the end of the season, we'll look for something else to do. All right, so, so we set a date, like a deadline. And I think these deadlines are really, really important. Um, because if we don't set the deadline, and I'm sure that you've seen this in your work, you know, people come in and they're complaining, like, I'm so unhappy in my relationship. And then it's like, all right, what are you going to do about it? Oh, I'm going to have a frank talk and I'm going to do, and then they come in three months later, I'm so unhappy in my relationship. And then they come in three months later, I'm so unhappy in my relationship. And this can go on for like a decade. So we always want to set a deadline. How long are we, how, how long do we need to do this to find out what we need to know? Or sometimes in the case of like a relationship that's going poorly or a job that's not going well, how long can we tolerate the situation? All right, so we set a deadline. Hmm. And then we say, okay, so uh, to my kid, maybe uh, you're going to play for the rest of the season. You know, you've got five more games. Let's talk about what you might, feel like? What are the things that we might see at the end of the season that would tell us whether this was just a bad day, you know, or whether soccer really isn't for you? Right. So we can figure out whatever those things are. Um, And then, you know, at the end of the season, when you reassess, uh, you know, either you tell them, okay, you you put in your best effort. That's all I asked for. I said, you've got to try your best uh, to see if you can make it work. And then you figured out you couldn't make it work. And so it's okay. But I think that what's important with kids is to say, so now what are you going to do? Again, if we think about why did we put them in soccer in the first place, it's not so much about the soccer. It's about the, maybe it's the physical activity, the team play, the, um, you know, learning what it feels like to be bad at something and then get good at something like that kind of stuff. Well, they can get those lessons from anywhere. So it's like, all right, you're not going to do soccer, but that doesn't mean you're just going to sit on the couch. Like, let's talk about what you're going to move on to. Um, and I think that's a good way to do it. And and you can do this, you know, like somebody 
who's complaining to you about their relationship, you can ask act as a quitting coach for them and combine it with kill criteria and say, okay, how long can you tolerate the situation as is? Like, how long is this okay with you? Maybe they say six months. We say, all right. Um, so what are, like, imagine it's six months from now and you're still unhappy. Like, what's going on in the relationship? Right? And you write those things down. Imagine it's six months from now and things have really turned around. What does that look like? And then say, okay, what are the inputs that you need in order to actually make it work? And maybe that would be like couples therapy, for example, right? Yeah. Um, and now you've got a deadline and very clear criteria. What are the things that you're going to see that would tell us that you should stay or walk away? Yeah, those are both really helpful. And yeah, I, I'm hearing the, the importance of, of the neutral advice is the first one, somebody who's not as attached, just to reiterate. And then I think the importance, just as you said, of of creating almost these timelines and, and looking at objective markers that one can use moving forward. Um, so no, I, I, I really appreciate that. And I wonder, as, as someone who I think is kind of psychologically minded or trained as a therapist, what are the traits that allow people to kind of be good at this and pivot and go and move on and those that really perhaps are so change averse or anxious they will not do it because I think in our lives we could think of plenty of examples of people that fit into these different categories mm -hmm. you know yeah so I think it's probably the same the same qualities that you know divide people between you know there's people who get analysis by paralysis, right? Like they can't, they can't even start anything. Mm. They can't, you know, do that because it's just like, it's so paralyzing that to them to think that I might be starting something without knowing for sure. Um, and then there's people who are totally okay with that. So we all have to sit here and make our best educated guess about what things we want to do and what things we don't want to do in terms of in terms of the starting decision. And then what applies to the starting decision applies equally to the quitting decision. That, you know, you're at the time that it's correct to quit, you're not gonna know for sure. That if you do know for sure, it's a really bad thing. Most people don't quit their jobs until they used up all their sick days and all their vacation days. And, you know, they can't get out of bed and, and because it's such a horrifying situation for them to have to go to work. But that's long after you should have done it. So when we aren't comfortable with uncertainty, when we aren't saying, look, we're all trying to do our best here. And under the conditions that I'm having to decide things, whether it's decisions about starting them or stopping things, stopping them, that there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. And after the fact, I'm going to discover a whole bunch of new information. And sometimes I'm going to say, oh, I wish I knew then what I know now. Uh, you know, that's okay because that's just the condition into which we are all born. Yeah. And the more comfortable you can get with that uncertainty, I think the better your decision-making is going to be on two fronts. One is that uh, you're not going to take so long to start things that you're completely paralyzed. And then on the flip side, you're not going to start things willy-nilly either uh, because you're going to say, like, what can I find out in the time that I really have to get me to enough confidence that this would be a good thing to start? Um, so you're going to live in that in-between zone. And I think that's going to be true of the quitting as well, is that you're going to be able to get to be focused on the do, what's my best judgment of whether this is worthwhile so that you neither just quit things at the first sign of trouble, nor do you stick to things so long until you're already 95% dead. And the only thing I would add on to that, and I'm speaking, I guess, just from my own life experience and observances of others. And it, maybe it comes back to this phrase that there really is not a winner's circle, but that, right. that even when you get, let's say, to the finish line or you've achieved what you thought the goal was that would give you certainty, my experience is you get there and there's still uncertainty. Mm. Things are not always wrapped up in a nice bow, which says, ah, this was the right thing and now I'll continue or I should go this way. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I, I totally know what you mean. I mean, the thing is that it's an illusion. You know, we, I say this all the time, like people, people will be trying to decide something and they'll have two options. Like uh, they're trying to decide like a fabulous European vacation and they've narrowed it down to Paris and Rome. Mm. Um, and then they spend the next two months on like TripAdvisor <laughs> and talking to everybody who's ever been to Paris and Rome yeah. under the illusion that somehow they can get to certainty. And the fact is that that's an illusion. You can't possibly do it. 
And what a waste of two months trying to get certainty that isn't even attainable because the whole reason why it's such a hard decision or it feels like it's a hard decision is because they're the same choice. <laughs> there really isn't that much difference. It's like, I don't know, do you, maybe, you know, do you like French food better than Italian food? Well, I guess you must like them equally if you're having such a hard time deciding between the two. Mm. And... You know, so I, I think that then what happens is that because we're sort of searching for a certainty that isn't going to come, we do have this imagining that once I, you know, get to Paris, then I'll know for sure if it was the right choice. But the fact is that you won't because you didn't go to Rome. Mm. So you're always going to wonder, was that the right thing to do? Was it the right choice to make this choice? Whether you know, if, whether it's a job or whatever. And then when you stay in the job so that you can find out for sure, even then you're not going to know for sure. Yeah. Right? So I think, you know, Richard Thaler put this so well. He said, most people won't quit until it's no longer a choice. And what he meant by that was you're already, you've already fallen into the crevasse. Right. Right, you 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 know you can't. So so in, I mean I'm I'm sure that you've seen this a lot. You have someone who's like really unhappy in a relationship. They're really complaining. They're refusing to walk away, and they they don't walk away until their partner breaks up with them. Sure. Well, okay. So then it's not your choice anymore. And that's usually when people are willing to do it because when that's forced upon you in that way, you you don't have any of the what ifs. You have the well, what could I do? I didn't have a choice. And I think that a lot of people are more comfortable with that than, you know, they'll stay in, in unhappiness, hoping that they can find some certainty, hoping that they can find out for sure. And in sometimes, sometimes I think they're hoping that somebody will break up with them so that the decision is off their shoulders. Hmm. Well, I've been speaking with Annie Duke, author of Quits, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. And uh, Annie, I've, this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for, for diving into this with me. It, it's left me with, with a lot of big, big questions and ideas. So I appreciate it. Well, I love it. And what I would say to you when you about your Iron Man uh -huh. is that if you had if you had set kill criteria in advance, you would have had your moment. But I think you would have figured out very quickly, oh, I should continue. Because I imagine your kill criteria would be things like the medical staff is telling me to stop. Exactly. Right. And you would have been sitting there eating your pretzels saying, look, this is hard. It's mentally really tough. But there's nothing physically wrong with my body. I think you're exactly right. There, there was not enough data to say that you can walk away yet. That yeah. feeling tired and irritating and fatigue is not enough for you to quit. And so I, I think you're right. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm glad I was on that porta potty. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, having you know, we all look at we all have our, our breakdowns here and there, right? That's so a, we all end up there at some point. It's all good. This was this was such a fun conversation. Well, likewise, and and, and Annie, thanks again. All right, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. And once again, I'd love your stories about quitting and your experiences with it. Share them at our Facebook page. You can find it at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.